Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Welcome everyone to the Apple for the Teacher podcast. My name is Anna Thomas. This is episode 49 and it's part two of the previous episode. So if you haven't already, I suggest that you go back and listen to episode 48. Firstly, let's say hello to some of our Facebook group members. Hello to Stacey Muse, Jim Jans Diaz, Blanco Marlin and Christian Oquendo. As this story took place in Wales in the UK, Wales was the country of focus in the previous episode, so I thought I'd give you a few more facts about Wales. This first fact about the climate in Wales just floored me. The average temperature in Wales during summer is 20 degrees Celsius or 70 degrees Fahrenheit. But would you believe here where I live in Australia, this temperature in Wales in summer is actually my winter temperature. I kid you not. Here in winter, it rarely gets below 20 degrees Celsius. So I cannot imagine being in Wales during summer feeling like winter in Australia. I feel cold just thinking about it. Wales has two official languages, English and Welsh which is a Celtic-based language and is spoken by about 20% of the population. A Welsh inventor by the name of Bill Frost was apparently the first person to take to the air, eight years before the famous Wright brothers in his flying machine, but the plane crashed into a tree. And finally, the Corgi dog, which is the Queen's favourite dog, actually originates from Wales and it means dwarf dog. So let's now get into the second part of the story but first here's a recap of part one. It was the year 1966 in a small village called Abervan in Wales. A coal mine operated near the village. The waste from the coal mine had been piled up in huge mounds in the hills overlooking the village. There were seven tips and one was particularly close to the village. After weeks of heavy rain, the coal waste was saturated and with an underground spring, the combined water caused a landslide. The landslide engulfed the village below, mostly hitting the primary school. 144 people were killed and this included 116 children from the school. This was half of the town's child population. An inquiry found that the National Coal Board had ignored numerous warnings about the dangers of the tips. However, 
No one was prosecuted. Let's now go on to part two. As you would know, in my podcast, I always try to find the accounts of the victims and survivors of the stories that I have told. For some stories, finding personal accounts is very difficult. And for some stories, I haven't been able to find any accounts at all, such as the rape and the murder of the girls in the school dormitory in Kenya. However, I was so pleased to find so many accounts from those who survived the Aberfan disaster and so much so that it was hard choosing which stories to tell. But I've decided to tell the story of Jeff Edwards. There is a very well-known photo from the tragedy showing a rescuer holding a little boy who had just been brought out of the rubble alive. He is wrapped in a blanket, and what is really striking is his head of blonde hair so vivid compared to the blackness of everything else around him. Jeff was eight years old and the last child to be brought out of the school alive. Here is his account. Jeff was in his classroom and had taken a library book off the shelf, which just happened to be the book The Adventures of Tintin, and he went back to his desk. His teacher had been writing on the chalkboard when the loud rumbling sound started. The teacher said it was only thunder and that it would soon stop. The next thing Jeff remembered was waking up and hearing shouting and screaming. He was trapped under his desk, but luckily had been in an air pocket. Then he realised the girl who sat next to him was right by his shoulder. He said, Her head was right next to my face. I could see she was dead. There was no doubt about it. And to this day, Jeff cannot get the image of the little girl out of his head. I can't get away from her. I still see her sometimes. I just can't stop it all coming back. So that's why I had nightmares for years after. This kid on my shoulder, you know? I know who the girl was. I never revealed who she is, obviously because of her parents. But yes, I did know her. Jeff had been pinned for two hours, saying, I couldn't move and there were screams and shouts, which obviously got less and less as time went by. I was lucky because the only reason I survived was the fact that I had a pocket of air around me. The others who died, they either died through the physical trauma, being killed by falling debris or the tip itself, or from asphyxiation, being buried in the rubble, and they couldn't breathe. It was just fortunate for me that there was a pocket of air around me, so it enabled me to breathe. Here is how Jeff described his rescue. Quote, I heard the men breaking a window, and someone said, there's someone down here. I can see white hair. And how I got picked out was my white hair. When they were digging around, they saw my white hair. They started to remove all the girders and debris from around me, but they still couldn't get me out. The firemen got their hatchets out and hacked away at my desk. Jeff said that after some time in hospital, he refused to go home and went and stayed with his grandmother in a nearby village. He goes on to describe life after the tragedy. Most of my friends in my class died. Basically, we were happy-go-lucky children 
looking forward to the half-term holidays, and then at 9.15, our childhood stopped. I was afraid of noise. I was afraid of crowds. I was afraid of going to school, and for many years, I couldn't go to school because I was afraid that something would happen to me. He also said that many of the surviving children didn't have a formal education for many years after. Many of the survivors and the community members themselves never talked about the tragedy. He said, I couldn't speak about what happened to my parents because of the horrific things I saw. You felt you didn't want to put them through that, says Jeff, who has never spoken about it even to his own mother. He went on to say, To a certain degree, death is a part of that life. But when it comes to children dying in an industrial accident, it really gets to people, even the most macho. Jeff said that the miners tried to remain stoic and seeking psychological help was seen as weak. He said, so you had divorce rates go up, an increase in alcoholism, disease, antidepressants, stress, anxiety, which all led to premature deaths. At that time, PTSD had little understanding or recognition, he said. After the disaster, we had interventions from psychiatrists, but services were in their infancy. They didn't really know how to deal with it, and it wasn't much help. There were sessions, and we were offered different drugs. Jeff never married and decided not to have children. He said the trauma had corrupted his DNA. He said, your personality has changed to such a degree. Your traits, your makeup, your being has so fundamentally altered that you wouldn't want to perpetuate it. It totally and utterly closes you down. You can actually smell the school. Somewhere in your psychological background, you have the smell and the taste of the school, the coal, the slurry. It takes you back there. It's something you want to get away from, but you can't and never will. Some days I get so overwhelmed by crippling depression that I can't function. I can't get out of bed. Jeff went on to university and graduated with an accountancy degree. But he decided to return to Abervan and set up community projects to help the young people with social problems suffered as a result of the disaster. He was also awarded an MBE in 2003 and even went on to be mayor of the local council. He also contributed to guidelines on PTSD to the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. He also took part in clinical studies and spoke at conferences. Jeff also helped the victims of Dunblane, Paddington and the 2011 tsunami in Japan. What a man. I've just got so much admiration for him. He should have had kids. He would have been a great father. But how sad is that, that he thought his DNA was so corrupted by the trauma that he thought any children he had would have also been affected by what he went through. So sad. Now let's look at the story of the teacher, Hetty Williams, who we met earlier. She was a 23-year-old teacher who taught a class of first graders. As already mentioned, she instructed the students to hide under their desks. They all survived the tragedy. 
She was only one of four teachers who survived. Hattie went on to have a long teaching career. She married and had a family and was due to celebrate her 50th wedding anniversary when she sadly passed away from a heart attack at the age of 75. A 500-strong congregation attended her funeral. One of her students, Ian Davies, also attended her funeral. Ian recalled there was a loud roar, and here is his account of that day. We had only just had registration, and there was an enormous loud roar I can only liken to a jet engine. Hetty instructed us to get under our desks. She was so calm and measured. She tried to open the door, but there was a lot of rubble in the way. Eventually, the caretaker came and freed us. He himself lost two sons that day. Hetty took us out into the yard and told us to head for home. We still had no idea what had occurred. She told us to run and not look back. When the school reconvened several weeks later in a local working man's club, she was there. A lot of people would never have been able to return to work. They would have needed counselling or medication. So it was a massive boost for the class to have a familiar face there. It was incredible. Another of Hattie's students, David Davies, said the following about her. I always remember her as an inspirational teacher, but more so as a wonderful human being. David had been buried in the rubble, but was one of the lucky ones. He said, Certainly, as a young teacher, it was quite a feat to keep calm a class of seven-year-olds and get them out safely amidst the chaos. Hetty also had to identify my own class teacher who didn't survive. They were friends, so she knew what he was wearing. He also said that every year she went to lay flowers on behalf of all of the teachers in the memorial garden, but that she couldn't face going to the cemetery as it would be too painful and difficult for her. He spoke about her funeral, saying, It was an incredibly moving occasion and a fitting sending off for a special lady. The people of Abavan will never forget our dear Hetty. I searched for some audio of Hetty and I was so pleased when I found this audio clip. So take a listen. This was where my classroom was. And um, on the anniversary, um, I come back to the school because um, that's where my memories are. And I can still see the children in their classes and things. And I come and there's a tree over there that's twisted and I take a fancy to the tree. <laughs> so I like to go there and put my flowers under that tree. And I feel I can feel my children around me. And you can think back to the days when it was a lovely place. I can see um, the tables and chairs with the children sitting in them. And they were such a happy group of children. They, they were just adorable. We saw earlier that the Prime Minister visited on the night of the disaster and the Queen's husband, Prince Philip, and her brother-in-law, Lord Snowden, visited the next day. So the magnitude of the disaster was undeniable. Yet, Queen Elizabeth herself refused to visit the village. 
Her advisors strongly urged her to attend, but nothing they said would persuade her. This sparked much criticism, which is why she finally sent her husband, Prince Philip, instead. She then made a visit eight days later, and the people noted that she was visibly upset, and they appreciated her being there. They said, she came when she could, and nobody would condemn her for not coming earlier, especially as everything was such a mess. Since the tragedy, the Queen has visited four times over the years. In the year 2002, which was 40 years after the tragedy, she said that not visiting Aberfan immediately was her biggest regret. Now, there's some other really interesting information that I came across about this story. Not long before the disaster happened, a 10-year-old girl named Earl May said the following strange thing to her mother. She said, I'm not afraid to die. I shall be with Peter and June. Now, her mother didn't think anything of it. And then, on the day before the disaster, she said to her mother again, Let me tell you about my dream last night. I dreamt I went to school and there was no school there. Something black had come down all over it. So did she have a premonition of what was to come? And then I was so sad to hear that she was killed in the disaster, along with the school friends that she talked about, Peter and June. She was buried side by side with her friends. And here's another child who may have also had a premonition. Paul Davies was an eight-year-old boy who sadly died in the landslide. And it was only after the event that his mother found a drawing that he had done which appears to show the disaster. In the drawing, you can see some hills, which could be the pits above the town. There's also a plane flying above with the letters NCB on it for the National Coal Board. And there are what appears to be train carriages also with the initials NCB, which seems to depict the coal being transported. Then there appear to be figures that look like they may be victims lying on the ground. And it also looks like that there is digging happening. At the top of the drawing are the words, the end. Now, was there anything to this drawing? Children will often draw things with which they identify, things which play a prominent part in their lives. So the mine was prominent in the town. His father may have even been a miner. So is this where the drawing came from? When he wrote the end, this is what children write when they finish a story. But was this signalling the end of the town? I must say that I'm sceptical about things like this, premonitions and the like. So, what do you think? Just four years ago, in 2016, Abervan commemorated the 50th anniversary of the disaster. Prince Charles was in attendance. He laid a wreath and unveiled a plaque in memory of the victims. He also read out a message from the Queen and attended a reception with the families before signing a book of remembrance. He remembered he was at school in Scotland when he heard the appalling news of the disaster. The Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May, 
also paid tributes in Parliament and everyone paused for a minute's silence, as did the students at the new school in Aberfan. And here is another part of the story that I discovered, which just absolutely floored me. I found a photo of a man named Mike Flynn. His father had been one of the rescuers, and he had dug up a clock from the rubble. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. The clock was no longer working, but the clock face showed the time 9.13. How amazing, right? So it must have stopped when the landslide hit. The clock was used in the inquiry as it clearly showed the time that the disaster happened. Once the inquiry was over, it was handed back to his father, who then passed it on to Mike. He said, The last time it ticked was in Abervan when they were all still alive. It stopped at the time 144 people stopped with it. Mike took the clock with him to the 50th anniversary, and that just gives me the chills. This is just one of the photos that I will put into the Facebook group for you to see. So, what about Abervan today? A new school was opened in the village three years after the tragedy. The mine closed in 1989, 23 years after the disaster. The site was landscaped and covered with trees. If you were to visit there now, you would have no idea of the tragedy that had occurred. However, if you look closely enough at the hills overlooking the town, you could see where the pits once were. And you would also notice that the grass that grows there is not a nice green colour, but a sickly yellow colour. Attempts had been made to cultivate the grass, but it seems that nature is making a statement that it will not forgive what had happened there. The river near the town was once clogged with coal waste, but now the fish and birds have returned. The cemetery can be clearly seen on the hillside above the village with the two rows of children's graves, with their prominent white arches. The pictures of the cemetery are really beautiful, and it's very obvious that it's being lovingly maintained. And here is an audio clip of Jeff Edwards, who we met earlier, as he walks through the cemetery. When I walk uh, along the um, gravestones, or the memorial itself. Um, I don't see the names there, but I see the children uh, that I knew at that particular time. I was looking forward to my party in November where many of those children would have been. But uh, when my party came on the 13th of November, there were no children to have a party with. So here we're now at the site of the memorial itself and as we walk down here you can see the ages of the children uh, being either 8, 9 or 10. It's very difficult for me to be here actually. It's very, very emotional for me to be here uh, walking down here and seeing these people. We live in this community, we remember it every day because we're living here. But I think the message from Abavan is one of hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that communities that are affected by, by such tragedy can eventually come to terms with what happened to them but they will never ever forget what happened to them 
but there's no ending to it. It'll be with me and the rest of the community until we die, because we are, at the end of the day, victims of that disaster. The memorial garden where the school once stood is also beautifully maintained. A community centre was built on the site where 18 houses were destroyed. All of these continue to be looked after by the Disaster Trust Fund. A new primary school was opened in 2012 by the Queen. Now, I have a personal connection to this coal mine disaster. I did my teaching country service in a coal mining town. Basically, every teacher is expected to work in a country or remote area at some point in their career. The department just chooses people randomly, and my name came up after I had been teaching for about five years. These locations are not seen as desirable as they're very remote, and therefore people need to be chosen to work in schools in these areas. Some teachers decide very early in their career that they will do their country service and then can't be asked to do it again. It becomes more difficult if you get married and have kids and then have to uproot the family, so some people decide to do it very early in their career. Every school has a rating from 1 to 7. A school with a rating 1 means it's in an urban area which is more desirable. A rating 7 school is in a very remote location. For each year that you teach, you get points which accumulate. So for a rating one school, you get one point for each year that you teach there and seven points for a rating seven school. Therefore, in these remote locations, you can accumulate points very quickly and then you can cash them in and request to be transferred to a location of your choice. I was sent to a rating four school and I was there for four years. I was then able to get back to live where my family was. The town that I went to had accommodation specifically for teachers, which was rent-free and electricity-free. So this was used as an incentive for teachers to go to these locations. Two years before I arrived there, there was an underground mine explosion at the coal mine, which killed 11 men. While the men were being extracted, there was another explosion Therefore, the rescue was abandoned. Those men were sadly entombed and the underground sections were closed, with the open-cut sections continuing to operate. Then about 10 years before that, there had been another explosion which had killed 12 men, but their bodies had been able to be extracted. So when I arrived in this town, the disaster was still new. Our neighbour worked in the mine and he was able to take myself and some of the other teachers on a tour and it was so fascinating to say the least. So now that town only has open cut mining. Now I have something more to add about this. I wrote this last part of the story and then had a break and went out to do some shopping. The radio was on in the car And I heard a news report that there had been an explosion in a coal mine, which was about four hours away from the school where I had been teaching at. Can you believe it? I had just written about teaching in that coal mine, and then I hear this story on the radio. Five men were taken to the hospital, and at this point, it seems like they are okay and that no one has actually been killed. 
But I just thought that that was bizarre, that I was just writing about it and another coal mine disaster happens. So it's like, did I just, did I have a premonition, just like the children in this story? Did I have a premonition that this coal mine tragedy was going to happen? I was just writing about it and it's just like, oh, that's too bizarre. Maybe now I will believe in premonitions. Anyway, let's get back to the story. I'd now like to finish the story by reading the words of a song that was written about the tragedy, simply called Abavan. You heard a small part of the song at the start of the episode. The words tell the story so well, and I was tearing up when I first read it, so perhaps get your tissues ready. So, here it is. was the 21st of October on a foggy Friday morn and the children sang things beautiful and bright. Their fathers dug the coal beneath the mountainside above and grew the tip that shattered all their lives. For years the town folk worried about the spring beneath Myrtle Vale. Could it someday bring the slag upon the town? And on that fateful morning, in the mining south of Wales, 500,000 tonnes came raining down. Chorus In Abervan, 116 children, Abervan, so cruel a fate to will them. There'll be no consolation, for the cobwebs wash their hands of the blood of those young children in the town of Abervan. They heard a distant rumble, and it soon became a roar so quickly that they had no time to flee. The parents and the miners dug frantically in vain through tears that made it difficult to see. The Crown and her tribunal and the coal board had their say, empty words that fell on deafened ears. New rules and regulations are not the prime concern when you're burying a child of seven years. Since that day my father's Never mind an ounce of coal, for he lost a son and daughter in the slide. He sees my brother James and sister Margaret in my eyes. The torment and the grief will not subside. Most days the memory lingers, sometimes it starts to fade, till you see the hollow faces in a crowd. And it brings back the resignation, twill never go away, a generation lost beneath a shroud. In Abervan, a hundred sixteen children, Abervan, so cruel a fate to will them. There'll be no consolation, for the coal boards wash their hands of the blood of those young children in the town of Abervan. What a tearjerker, right? I found out some other amazing information about this song. The band that wrote the song were never able to play it live because whenever they tried to rehearse, they would break down. How sad is that? You will also hear a small part of this song at the end of the episode. It's absolutely haunting. No wonder they couldn't play it. I will also put the song in the Facebook group, but if you want to find it yourself, it's called Abervan, A-B-E-R-F-A-N, 
and the name of the band is Dullahan, D-U-L-A-H-A-N. Thank you again to Kate Diprose for this story. I have been amazed by the photos and the video footage about the case, given that it happened 50 years ago. You will find many aerial shots and you can clearly see the path taken by the landslide. And you can also see how close the mounds of waste were to the town. You can see how gravity helped the sludge to slide down the hillside. They just didn't have a chance. What a fantastic story. I'm now going to add a little more to this episode. I'm now recording this from the future. My podcast is now almost up to 100 episodes, but I had someone send me some information about this episode that you listened to today about Abavan, so I thought I would share it with you. Here is what she said. Brought back sad memories. Hi Anna, I'm a retired teacher and I've been very much enjoying listening to the back catalogue of your episodes while I paint in my studio. I've just finished listening to Avalanche Part 1 about the Abavan disaster in 1966 and it brought back so many sad memories for me. I grew up in an English coal mining village. My father was a miner, as were the fathers of most of my schoolmates. On the day this awful event happened, I clearly remember being at school as a six-year-old and hearing the dinner ladies crying and talking about what had happened in Wales. That evening, I watched the news with my parents and brothers on our little black and white TV in absolute horror. There was a pit tip right opposite our house. Our schools helped to raise money for the devastated families. The event has often been revisited on TV here, including in the dramatisation about the royal family, the Crown, last year. On the 50th anniversary of the disaster, a man who was from Abavan and survived because he was ill that day recalled the fact that it was his birthday during the half term the following week and he had invited many classmates but the party did not go ahead because all his classmates were dead. He also recalled that children were ashamed to play in the street after the disaster for fear of upsetting families who had lost their children. So, so sad. Keep up the good work, Anna, from Julie P. Oh my goodness, how absolutely amazing is that? I don't know how she remembers that. She was six years old. But I guess at that age, you do remember things which really stood out because they were traumatic or for some other reason. I mean, you don't remember just basic everyday things as a six-year-old, but something like that clearly she remembers, which is absolutely so amazing. I received this from Julie and I thought I just have to go back and add it to the end of this episode. So there you have a first-hand account, just so amazing. So thank you so very much to Julie. I know she's not going to now listen to this because she, she would have already listened to the episodes, but I thought it would be nice for the rest of you to get a first-hand account from a person who had actually been there. So that's all from me for now. Goodbye. I'd now like to give you a preview of the next episode. It's called Daddy Daycare. Here's a summary. The man worked at a daycare centre. What was he accused of? 
So to end this episode, I will leave you with this conversation between a teacher and a student. Student, would you punish me for something I didn't do? Teacher, of course not. Student, well, I didn't do my homework. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple. So cruel a fate to will them, they'll be known.